This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. In this week's Shoeshine, Dieter de Boney looks at the various ways climate activists around the world are fighting companies, governments and bodies like the EU in the courts to try and force action on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Dieter, we're obviously talking about the Mike Smith v. Vonterra and others court case, which yes. was earlier this month. Yes. I'm loath to say, let's just recap that, but <laughs> what's, uh, what was the broad can't, finding there? Can't be done too quickly. Yeah. But um, basically, this is a case taken in a civil court, which is a first for New Zealand, which looks at various claims um, against these emitters, sort of using a novel approach in, in how it's trying to um, force them to account for their emissions. So it's it's using claims of nuisance, it's using claims of a breach of care of duty, which is kind of a new thing for a company to have to consider, um, because they don't usually, a government has a care of duty rather than a company, and a novel claim that um, they should not be taking part in climate change emissions, mm. you know, that they should be reducing their impact. Mm. Because it's quite pr- hard to prove that, you know, an individual person has been impacted by climate change because of, say, Fondera or so forth. So yeah. these are new kind of things. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Um, it'll go back to the High Court. So the Supreme Court case about whether he could even bring this claim mm. was heard what, mid-2022 from memory. And yes, litigation partners in New Zealand that we spoke to at the turn of the year were all, you know, all eyes were on this case. So what are they saying in the wake of the decision? Um, Well, they're all saying it's going to be game-changing, obviously. But for business, um, the better businesses are already factoring in risks like this. So Mm. I think that um, what it just does is, is... highlight once more that these risks are coming from all different angles. You know, climate activists around the world are trying all different ways to to bring uh, businesses and governments to justice, and they're using all sorts of arguments, things like human rights, you know, mm. all sorts of things. So should business be on alert now, or how do, how do they digest what this decision means for them? Um, business should be on alert. Um, they should be considered... To be honest, the good ones are already doing this. The mm. people like the Institute of Directors, you know, they, they have long hammered this idea that um, these liability risks are going to be a big thing. But it's things like, you know, insurance. They might have to reconsider how their insurance is configured. Um, and just looking at their, it seems to me that their, you know, scope two and three emissions also have to be very strongly and carefully factored into mm. to what they do. Uh, this has sort of been described as quite a unique do- judgment in the international climate. I mean, what is happening overseas in this space, though? There's, there is this sort of action all around the world? There's action all around the world. Um, from about 2015 to about 2020-21, these cases doubled or tripled, you mm. know, around the world. So um, most of them still take place in America, but there's an increasing number in the developing world, and those kind of tend to fall on human rights concerns but also indigenous things young people are bringing cases I even saw one where older women had bought a case in Sweden saying that they were very susceptible to heat (laughs) which as you will know is our long writing on menopause Um, that that is so you know there are all these novel kind of claims it's quite interesting so obviously ramifications to come but I guess at the top 
director liability looks like that's just going to be even more complicated. Director liability. This won't be the last case. Even if he if he gets it through, it definitely won't be the last case mm. because there'll be many others that <laughs> yeah. are aping it. Um, but even if he doesn't, I think it will give people ideas. Um, something that I've read is that, or I've heard from one of the sources, was that a novel case, because one of the torts he's bringing is novel, new, um, that will encourage other activists to come up with their own new ideas on how to get around things. So mm. I think either way, um, we're going to see a lot more of this. Plenty of work for the lawyers as well. As always. Dita, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Raymond Scott is a senior associate in the commercial team at Simpson Grierson. He's with me now to talk about the EU FTA legislation amendment bill and how it seems to overwhelmingly favour the EU side of the EU and New Zealand equation. Ray, thank you for coming in. Now, tell us about the bill, first of all. Sure. Uh, so preceding this um, was the uh, entering into the free trade agreement between New Zealand and EU um, and as part of that New Zealand needs to introduce local legislation uh, to bring that into effect. Um, this, this bill that now has been introduced will implement part of those obligations from a local perspective and a core part of that relates to geographical indications. Now New Zealand has an existing geographical indication registration regime. Um, what a geographical indication does is it signals that a particular product um, comes from a particular geographic region and is associated with certain characteristics or qualities of that product. Um, classic examples are uh, Scotch whisky and champagne which are existing registered GIs in New Zealand. Um, now as part of this bill um, it's going to make quite significant changes to our existing regime and as part of that will allow for the registration of almost 2,000 EU GIs in New Zealand for a very wide range of goods. Um, meanwhile, New Zealanders won't have equivalent rights um, granted to uh, the EU through that process. Um, so it does seem lopsided in the way that the bill has introduced that. Weren't EU geographical indications already recognised in New Zealand before this? Yes, yeah, so there is a process for um, EU, uh, EU territories to be able to register GIs in New Zealand. Um, and that's limited to just uh, wines and spirits, as is the case of any New Zealander or any other territory to register just GIs for wines and spirits. So again, uh, mentioning, you know, you've got champagne, you've got Scotch whisky as existing EU um, GIs in New Zealand. Um, you've got, for example, Napa Valley from the US. And then you've got um, a whole uh, tranche of New Zealand related GIs registered here. Um, you've got certain um, ones such as New, uh, North Island, South Island, Waiheke, um, uh, Central Otago, Marlborough, the ones you'd expect um, re that really focus on our wine producing regions. Right. So let's talk a bit more about how lopsided the, the spill as proposed is. Um, what will it mean for New Zealanders who want to set up these geographical indicators and sell into the EU? Um, it, it's It's really about, well, what can they do within New Zealand? I think that's really the, the big impact here. Um, and, it, and it's twofold. One is, with all these EU GIs that are going to be registered in New Zealand, it means that New Zealand producers will need to look at transitioning out and stop using certain terms. So, so for example, we've got um, feta, um, 
uh, Prosecco, um, Parma ham. Those are some of the examples of the type of uh, EU GIs which are going to come into play in New Zealand. And there's certain transitional provisions around that, but it means that if you're, say, a new producer in New Zealand that wants to introduce a new feta product, you're not going to be able to use the term feta, um, or at least not certainly not after that transition. Um, and the other aspect is, well, what if you're a New Zealand producer who wants to register a GI for something other than wines and spirits? Say, say New Zealand uh, a bluff oyster industry wants to register a GI for bluff oysters in New Zealand. Yeah. They wouldn't be able to do that here. Okay. Why, is, why should the honey industry be disappointed? Well, manuka's been a, a, a key term, um, which is uh, certainly which the New Zealand industry has been seeking to protect. And currently, as it stands, it's not possible to register manuka or manuka honey as a uh, GI in New Zealand. There was an attempt to register it as a certification mark in New Zealand that failed as well. Um, so, again, there's there's this lopsided view on protecting certain EU um, terms or certain industries, but lacking the ability for, um, say, honey producers to protect terms in New Zealand. I do have to mention that under the, the FTA, there are some provisions at least that provide recognition for um, the, the trade in manuka honey. So it's quite possible that you'll see benefits in the export of manuka honey to EU in the overall net benefit that goes along with the, the Fair a free trade agreement deal. 2,000 is a lot, isn't it? Yes, and compared to uh, what is the 23 New Zealand GIs, <laughs> which will be able to get protection in the EU through their process. Um, so, again, that, that's, that's in part the consequence of New Zealand being a, a smaller market and with uh, less, less of a history, perhaps, as the EU, but also a consequence of New Zealand's GI regime only being for wines and spirits, and therefore our existing scope um, is much narrower. Can the EU add to these 2,000? Yes, so there is a process for the EU to add to that list or change the list. Um, that has to go through the Trade Committee. So uh, the, the Trade Committee um, is, has representatives from both the EU and New Zealand, so who knows what's going to come out of that? And any changes to that do have to go through an examination and um, opposition procedure. Um, but again, it, it's quite remarkable that the FTA envisages that those 2,000-odd should go through the, that procedure as well, but the bill just doesn't allow it. Why has it developed in such a lopsided way, do you think? Very, It's very curious, and it's very difficult to... to um, really answer that. Um, one, one possible um, factor that's gone into it is that New Zealand has also entered into a free trade agreement with the UK. And if New Zealand makes certain substantive changes to its geographical indication regime, it will trigger a requirement for New Zealand then to engage with the UK about changes with that. But even then, it doesn't answer the question of why not just open up the geographical indication regime in New Zealand to allow producers to register them for other products such as cheeses or yeah. um, honey um, or any other produce other than just wines and spirits. And do we have any indication of why our government, government, successive governments perhaps, have been reluctant to open that up? 
No, uh, well, I'm, I'm not aware of anything. And, you know, whether this is also a case of the FTA coming into a force and coming into force um, about halfway through this year, it's anticipated that it will be. And the need to, to really rush to get legislation in line to implement that. But then if it so, so be it, if, if you need to rush to get the legislation done, but surely it would be more efficient then if this was on their horizon to actually just make the changes at the same time to allow New Zealand producers to have that, that same broad scope of rights as well. Um, I haven't heard a huge outcry from producers. Why is that, do you think? Again, I think there were there were some checks and balances under the, the FTA. Um, what, what I would be interested to see now is how this bill progresses. And now that we've seen the wording of the bill, and as it goes through select committee and the readings um, through the, the legislative process, whether we do see more industry bodies speaking out about this, mm-hmm. um, because now's the opportunity to do that, while we've still got this as proposed legislation before it's enacted. Since 2020, Maersk has invested in several acquisitions to boost capabilities in contract logistics, customer service, e-commerce, air freight, and landside services across uh, Oceania. It is an exciting time for Maersk here in New Zealand with the much anticipating opening of our brand new Raukura cold store facility. This facility is poised to transform business opportunities for the region. This site is over 47,000 square meters in total, and the building itself is around 18,000 square meters, with approximately eight, uh, 150 million New Zealand dollars invested here in this facility. And it makes it, makes it Maersk's biggest infrastructure investment in New Zealand. This 18,000 square meter facility will optimize cold chain logistics in New Zealand, with access to port, depot, and inland service infrastructure around the Golden Triangle of Hamilton, Auckland and Tauranga. As a company, we have seen since 2020 doubled our global warehousing footprint to more than 7 million square feet and more than 275 facilities in the Asia-Pacific region, adding contract logistics to the Maersk value proposition across the region. Asia-Pacific is a must-win market for us. It is the largest regional economy in the world, bigger than Europe and North America, and on track to cross the 50% of global GDP by 2040. Key markets in Oceania have a forecast market size of $140 billion by 2026. And while we see growth potential in all business segments, Maersk aims to become the most trusted integrated supply chain partner in Oceania. This investment will not only improve business in the region, but will also holistically improve the lives of Waikato Tainui people. For us, this is an intergenerational mokopuna investment. This will endure beyond our time. And quite simply, the decisions that we make today must be underpinned by this intergenerational value that they bring to our people. So when we enter uh, this relationship, Vincent, 
we are mindful of this land that we stand on. Mindful that in 1849, our paramount chief, Portato Te Whero Whero, struck a deal with the then Governor Gray to not only protect these lands, but protect the city of Auckland. There was an agreement in 1849 and at, the death, at his death in 1860, three years after, that agreement was torn apart and then came the land wars and the invasion into our tribal territory. And I know that you made the trip from Auckland to Waikato this morning. In 1863, 1.3 million acres was taken at the point of a gun by the colonial government. Those are things never to be forgotten by the Siwi. And so we are here because in 1995, our predecessor, our leader, Sir Robert Mahuta, believed that we would not bemoan our fate nor our situation at that time, but take the opportunity to move and to transform this tribe. So in 1995, these were some of the lands that were returned to this tribe. And so from a his historical and cultural point of view, these lands here in this immediate area used to be not only the cultural, the, the, uh, the gardens of the local iwi and the, and the local sub-tribe, sub but this was also uh, the wetlands that our people relied on for, for kai, for nourishment and for medicinal supplies. So as we sit here today, I'm conscious that the history of this land will never be forgotten. Vincent, this tribe too has a uh, international trading credibility because by 1857, under the stewardship of Porto Te Whero Whero, Waikato Tainui amassed more than 20 trading schooners that plied the waters between Auckland, Sydney, the Americas, and London. That all ended when the colonial government invaded our lands in 1860 and took possession of all of the things that this tribe owned. This is a springboard for our modern day development. Ruakura stands here as a sentinel and as a reminder, not only for the people of our tribe, but also the people of this region, that Waikato Tainui are on the move and that we will embrace opportunities as we've done here at Ruakura. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
Today we're digging deeper into the Employment Relations Restraint of Trade Amendment Bill, which is making its way through Parliament, with Simpson Grierson Senior Solicitor Matthew Austin, and also looking at a couple of cases that perhaps show they've become a very common tool in employers' arsenals. Thank you very much for coming in. Can you tell us about this case, McCormick-Wilson? Yes, this is a case from from last year in the Employment Relations Authority. Uh, It's a a restraint of trade case involving a hairstylist uh, who worked for an employer for a couple of years, uh, was a senior stylist there, and then resigned uh, to effectively open her own business operating out of her home. Uh, She gave her notice of resignation in um, and informed her employer uh, that she was going to open her own her own salon, and then once her notice period finished, uh, she set up a Facebook page advertising for the the new business and uh, commenced cutting people's hair. Right, and I presume a whole lot of clientele went from this salon to her. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think there was a a few clients that left. Um, importantly, this employee had a, a restraint of trade clause in her employment agreement which prevented her from engaging in a competing business for, for 12 months after the termination of, of her employment. So the employer naturally uh, was a bit annoyed at this and sought to seek, uh, sought a interim injunction in the authority. Right. And what was the upshot of it? Uh, well, the authority determined uh, was was asked to determine whether there was a, an arguable case that um, the restraint was enforceable um, and whether there had been a breach and, and on that basis whether there was grounds for an interim injunction uh, which would effectively prevent this employee from, uh, from operating a competing business mm. for a certain amount of time. I think it's important to remember that these cases where they're seeking interim action are not a full-blown investigation meeting where they actually determine whether a restraint is enforceable um, or reasonable, uh, but it's simply a way of an employer being able to seek uh, protection for an, for an interim amount of time. Uh, so the authority looked at, in the first instance, where there was a, a serious question to be tried about the enforceability of the restraint. Uh, it said that there was a legitimate proprietary interest to be protected in relation to the the customer relationships and and client base that the employer had. Uh, It also assessed whether the restraint, which was 12 months long, was reasonably necessary to to protect that proprietary interest. And the authority said, look, in no way is a 12-month restraint going to be enforceable in full here. It's just mm-hmm. it's just not appropriate given yeah. the nature of the work and the level of the employee, uh, but it may be more appropriate for a, a three- to four-month restraint uh, right. to be imposed and, and enforced. But for the time being, the, you know, the, the time restraint doesn't matter for this sort of assessment. Um, and it also considered that uh, there was reasonable reasonableness be, because the employee would not be prevented from for example working in another salon the the restraint was limited to her engaging in her own business in right. competition with the employer right uh, that's interesting because that's an important distinction because that person um, wouldn't be able to make a living if they weren't allowed to work for someone else I mean setting up your own business maybe that's different but you'd hope that they'd be able to work for others but I I think some restraints of trade do cover 
working for a competitor, don't they? Yeah, that's right. And look, there's always that fine balance between um, providing an employer with adequate protection about their legitimate proprietary interests like confidential information, uh, client bases, uh, customer relationships, those sorts of things. Um, and that's, that is effectively what the authority and the courts are asked to do. It's uh, balance the, the interests of the employer with uh, the right for an employee to work and, and make a living and support themselves. Yeah. yeah. You have made a link to a barista case from several years ago. Yes, that's right. So I think this, the hairstylist case, it's not the first hairstylist case and it certainly won't be the last one and I think it's it's a good example and a reminder that restraints of trade being enforceable is not just limited to individuals in senior positions you know people who make the um, make the front news of front page of the newspaper and that sort of thing mm. they can be used and enforced against people who may be in more junior positions uh, less visible, roles uh, and and people who are often in lower paid positions too uh, and that was the case I think around 15 years ago um, with with the fuel espresso case where um, an employee was employed by fuel espresso uh, I think he had received some training uh, from from the business he was a barista there he left uh, to start a uh, to work at another coffee cart, I think it was around 70 metres down the road from the coffee <laughs> cart that he was working at, at the time. Um, and the employer tried to to rely on, on the restraint clause in, in the employment agreement. Uh, employment court didn't agree with the employer and said, you know, there's no, no consideration has been given here um, by the employer that was overturned in in the court of appeal uh, on a on a legal point, but there was some good discussion uh, by the employment court about the fact that coffee businesses do have legitimate proprietary interests to to protect. Uh, Fuel Espresso had you know had the value of this training program, which was uh, I think highly sought after, um, and also the you know ability for a barista to make those relationships with. Um, with the customers, I certainly try to go to the same coffee shop every day, sure, sure. Um, and I'd say that I have, you know, some sort of degree of loyalty to um, to the barista that makes my coffee. Yes, absolutely. So we know that employers do like restraints of trade, or they like being able to use them. What what is this bill going through Parliament at the moment? Um, the Restraint of Trade Amendment Bill. What does it seek to do, and where's it at? Uh, so it's. It's gone to the select committee at the moment. I think the select committee are due to report back uh, in May based on the submissions that they've received. Effectively, the the bill seeks to limit uh, the use of restraints of trade to individuals who make three times the minimum wage. Um, So, you know, we've talked about the the hairstylist case. We've talked about uh, the coffee cart case. I think the the impact of the of the bill, if it was passed, would be to make restraints of trade and in, in in relation to people occupying those roles yeah. um, useless. Yeah. Um, which you know, I can see the I can see the value in that because restraints can be restrictive. That's you know the nature of restraints is that they're restrictive and that they 
um, can burden employees, but at the same time, you have uh, employers who their staff are in customer-facing roles. They build strong relationships with with customers, even where they're not, you know, senior management positions, and they're relatively low paid, uh, such as the the hairstylist or the mm. or the barista, mm. and the bill would effectively cut those people out. You wouldn't mm. be able to enforce restraints of trade mm. um, in respect of those positions. And um, the the flip side of that is that for those that uh, individuals who would still be subject to restraints of trade, any restraints would be limited to six months in duration and employers would have to make reasonable compensation payments to employees uh, in respect of each week of their restraint period. Right. Uh, so this bill's not going to pass, is it? I'm sure it would not have Act National, well, at least National, National and Act's support. It would not have those. Yeah, I, I have doubts about whether it will pass. It's a member's bill, um, I think raised by Helen White. So I don't consider that it will have adequate support in the House. But you never know. You never know with these things that could go, um, could go the way that we don't think it will. Matt, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Look, uh, your lending growth is beating the market. Yep. Uh, we had ASB out the other day, they're down 11%. What are you doing right? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that we have really reached a much broader range of a mortgage broker advisor market. So traditionally, Kiwi Bank really focused on supporting its sister company, New Zealand Home Loans. But there's about 2,500 brokers out there in New Zealand offering that sort of advice and support. You know, 18 months ago, we were in front of about 150 of those brokers, now nearly 500. So we're in front of a lot more people where people are seeking advice. And if you think about why that is, triple CFA and high interest rates have really had a big impact. And so people are wanting support and advice. And so really, you know, our strategy has been where people decide is where we want to be and we're in front of more people. And it's obviously a very competitive market out there. Are you having to take hits on some of your margins to try and encourage, you know, home lending growth? No, we haven't. I mean, the, the net interest margin was up one basis point on six months ago, so pretty much flat. I mean, so we've grown strongly in deposit market. We grew over 4.3% in deposits and we grew 4.5% in lending. So I think for depositors and borrowers, we've done well. One of the things that Kiwi Bank has got is, you know, it's very well supported by its depositors to lend. Uh, and that helps our net interest margin position because obviously if we can support borrowers rather than wholesale customers, um, the cost is, you know, helps. On the other side of things though, business lending is flat. Yeah. How concerned are you about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough going, you know, like, I mean, to not go backwards is actually a win and that's a bit of a, a weird situation to find yourselves in. Not really thinking expanding, you know, you can see hiring intentions are off. So I'm actually really thrilled that we managed to stay flat. Um, but yeah, it's tough going. How are you viewing the economic outlook out there though? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, the headwinds. I mean, our view is that the brakes are on and we don't need to put the brakes on harder. So we don't think there's another reason for a hike. Uh, and I think, you know, you can see, you know, long-standing businesses like today, they were announcing that they're closing. And so when we looked back over the spend at Christmas time, our own customers card spend was down 14% on recreation and entertainment. So if you think about that, you know, that's one and a half out of 10 people that didn't go out for dinner, that didn't turn up in a restaurant or a bar to spend that money. You know, there's a business owner at the end of that. And so I think, you know, it is tough times, but it feels like it's, you know, 
on a, on a on a headwind which is sort of you know downhill rather than a steep decline. ANZ is predicting two more rate rises. You obviously disagree. Yeah, we do disagree with that position. I mean, everyone will have their own views, but we think actually enough is being done. We 100% accept there's more work to be done to get into that 1% to 3% range, but no, we don't see any reason that it needs to be two hikes. And ASB's chief executive was warning people the other day, look, don't get cocky about, um, you know, interest rates are going to come steadily down. What would be your view of that? Yeah, well, we think that actually we're in a position where you know, rates are probably going to trade sideways for quite a while. And so I think, you know, I wouldn't be, I, you know, I mean, to take her point, I wouldn't be encouraging people to think there's going to be a big savings in the household because there's going to be a massive cut in interest rates. But we also don't think there's any need for a rise. So I think this is the status quo for a while. On another matter, we've got the ComCom's banking report coming up. Uh, is that soaking up much of your resource and what are you hoping out of it? Yeah, look, we've been actively participating, but in terms of drain on resources, no, not really. Most of that work was done three, four months ago. I mean, I think there'll be another spike when it gets released, depending on what the findings are there. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we're in the trust business and you've got to embrace the scrutiny that comes from the ComCom and that's fine. We'll, you know, we'll see what comes out. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening.